If you are one of the wonderful people who subscribe to this podcast at www.patreon.com from what if to what next and enable me to shower it with the time, love and high production values it deserves, thank you. And if you aren't, perhaps today might be the day when you might consider becoming such a thing and enjoying all the other delights that accompany becoming a member, the bonus podcasts, and the knowledge that you are playing one small but vital role in enabling the imminent revolution of the imagination, no less. Welcome to From What If to What Next. We are the podcast that likes to exercise your imagination muscle, to replenish the cupboard of your memory with so many inspiring stories of what's possible that you find it so much easier to imagine a world profoundly different and infinitely more delightful than the one which currently appears to be on offer. One of my very favourite stories that I included in the book From What Is to What If was the story of the bank job in Walthamstow. The brainchild of Hilary Powell and Dan Edelstein it has been captured and celebrated in their brilliant, recently published book, The Bank Job, and in the forthcoming film of the same name, due for release in December. It's one of the most glorious and wildly imaginative projects I had come across, an amazing example of that sweet spot where arts meet activism. I'm not going to tell you too much about it because I'd like them to tell the story in their own words. I will tell you, though, that in the UK, like most other places in the world, we're in the depths of an appalling and worsening debt crisis. Four in ten UK adults have less than £100 in savings. The total UK personal debt recently passed £1.576 trillion and looks set to rise to £2.96 trillion in just two years' time, with an average UK household being in debt to around £57,000. And around that debt has sprung a huge parasitic world of murky practices where that debt is bought and sold and speculated upon. And in 2008, that debt and those practices almost brought the world's economy to its knees. I will also tell you that as I stood there in a former bank on Walthamstow High Street a couple of years ago, which had been repurposed by Hillary and Dan as what they called an act of citizen money creation, with the sunlight streaming in the windows, the smell of printing ink in the air, the busy activity of printing and cutting and gold foiling, I felt I was stepping into something deeply special, something deeply grounded, human scale, compassionate, mischievous and playful, and something that thought very, very big in its intention. But as I say, I'll let today's guests tell more about that story. And finally, I will also tell you that in the endorsement I wrote for their book, I described Hillary and Dan as the Bonnie and Clyde of renegade economics, bringing a deeply imaginative, beautiful rebel swagger to staid debate around debt. And I meant it. And so, our what-if question for today is, what if we were to respond to the debt crisis with art and playfulness? <laughs> So, allow me to introduce Hilary and Dan. 
Hilary Powell's work ranges from audiovisual epics supported by Acme and Henry Moore Foundation to print works collected by V&A and the Museum of Modern Arts. She has a track record of involving diverse communities in making, from public participation in the production of a pop-up book of the Lower Lee Valley to large-scale print collaborations with demolition workers and material scientists as alchemist in residence at UCL Chemistry. Dan Edelstein is an experienced film director and producer with multiple commissions for Channel 4. His first film, How to Re-Establish a Vodka Empire, was critically acclaimed and opened at BFI London Film Festival before being released around the UK and the US. As a duo, their fearless and curious work comes together in Optimistic Foundation CIC, a platform investigating and tackling urgent economic, philosophical and social issues of our time through anarchic, joyful cultural production. They believe in the subversive, radical imagination's ability to open up possibilities of more just ways of organising and living when everyday life and democracy are corroding. Hilary, Dan, welcome to From What If to What Next. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Th- Sorry, our dog as well is uh, <laughs> very enthusiastic to be on the show. Good, good. We welcome enthusiastic dogs. Fantastic. So I'd like to start with an activity that we always use to start this podcast. I'd like to invite you both to close your eyes and to imagine that you're travelling forward through time, leaving 2020 and heading for 2030. The 10 years you pass through are a time of remarkable and deep transformation, with change building in positive cascades and unprecedented coming together of imagination and action, all unimaginable back in 2020. We emerge into the bright sunlight of a world that is not a utopia, but is the result of absolutely everything we could possibly have done being done. It's a world that is post-carbon, resilient, more local, more equal, more diverse, more beautiful, more delicious. It's a world in which communities, organisations, even nations, have responded to the debt crisis with art and playfulness. I wonder if you might walk us through your imaginations of what that world would look like, feel like, sound like, taste like. What would you see as you walked through the streets of 2030? Can you bring it alive for us, Dan? I can try, Rob. Uh, so <laughs> I, I feel we can ask no more than that. Yes, <laughs> I, w- I want to. I want to conjure a vivid kind of uh, world with, with rich in detail that, that you can almost that you can almost taste. Um, however, I'm not <laughs> not 100 sure what that world looks like. I I would just say that um, in this world that we create, you know, by 2030 together that we have effectively proven, I, th- I think, on a community scale that we can bypass the kind of uh, political structures which are standing in the way of that at, at this moment. So it's a, it's a world where community projects have, have proven uh, the way out. So I, so I feel that, that we have, uh, have neighbourhoods which, which connect t- well together and that people are sort of chatting in the streets planning things in the streets where there's less kind of busyness in the sense that people are not having to rush around and feeling deeply kind of stressed by the by the needs to acquire the very basic things in life but where people instead are able to kind of have the time and the space to be as creative as possible and also they have a kind of um experience now they've built up some form of experience of of basically participating 
within this change that they have created so that there's a widespread participation in the construction of this world, which is not, as you say, perfect and nor is it utopian, but which is a, a work in progress, you know, much like the world is now and, and probably like the world will be in 2030 and on. Um, but that this this world has more of inequality, you know, that children are not hungry, um, that no one is hungry, in fact, uh, because there's absolutely no need for that, nor was there ever any need for it. And that people are living lives which which feel to them to be useful and re rewarding and meaningful that everyone feels that they have the psychological space, I think, which is terribly important to be creative and to really to really be their best selves. You know, um, democracy is something that people believe in again and people believe that they actually have agency in in their lives, both on the kind of personal level, uh, but also on the political level, that, that there is, that the, the system, the democratic system, which is today clearly not working, is now functioning. And that there is also, I think in this 2030 of, of the not too distant future, that there is a feeling that, that, that we do really want to look after one another. And that um, those sorts of policies of care are widely enacted and, they, and, and the people who say that those, those things are somehow alien to mankind and womankind are silenced. And that the ones who right now are saying that progressive policies are alien, if you like, to, to, to what human beings truly are, those people are now the ones who are actually the aliens, I guess. There's an inversion that takes place. People believe that life, as, as a first principle, that life has a meaning. Philosophy is not something which is saved for, uh, you know, universities, but which is something which is debated and and um something which is i suppose common to to everyone we all need to to know why we're alive and what we're here for and that that's something that 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 can be much more widely appreciated and shared i would say that's 2030 there you go <laughs> thank you hillary well if we're thinking about the debt responding to debt it would hopefully be by then that there is we won't need to respond to debt that through kind of it is a collective uh, awakening or economic education and that's the kind of urgency right now there's been a push forward of these you know global national policies that have enacted a debt write-off and in turn allowed policies like the universal basic income and the green new deal to start to be enacted and, and enrolling people in useful work and yeah as Dan was saying no basically I think the idea of debt is an idea of freedom to be I think there's a good quote that I was just leafing through from Andrew Ross who wrote the book Creditocracy that short of armed repression the loading of debt onto all and sundry has proved to be the most reliable restraint on the free citizenry in modern times and I think that's really what we've been working towards this kind of freedom from the narratives that control us and free by then we hopefully and it's a big it's a big task to be free of these overbearing moralizing narratives that divide all of us and in the case of 
debt it's about the idea of the debtors as sinners and somehow the blame and shame surrounding them and and how we people are pitted against each other in these kind of economic terms and how that hopefully we will have through yeah storytelling art playfulness combined with um campaigning and policies we'll be coming through that towards the realization that we are we are all in this together and that can apply across all issues from um you know tackling the climate breakdown to uh, immigration that we can work we're all humans and we're working on this together so the streets around here i imagine that the bank that we occupied which now lies empty on a kind of miserable high street nothing's happened to it since we tried to buy it will come to life as a hub of kind of citizen action and education poetry and and um constant kind of debate and and self-education and that this could happen across the country that we will always need these spaces to meet and and talk and nothing's ever going to be perfect but there will be these meeting spaces where communities can come together the streets the air around here will be cleaner because we're already communities will be taking action on these kind of community energy projects if the political systems by then have not uh, enacted change then communities will be realizing that we have to make this change for ourselves and that so the roofs of our street will be full of solar panels and the air will be cleaner <coughs> people will have more time like they had in lockdown but it obviously there was a big divide and inequality in who had the time to tend gardens and and make those decisions to eat more healthily that at the moment are governed by economics so I think on all these scales, but I think it all will stem in these years from education across from communities and educating and empowering themselves to, you know, policy changes within education and um, and that together we will all realise that we can, that we, we can make change and that we're not enslaved to this system, that it can be changed and that there is a forest of magic money trees that are there <laughs> for all of us. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you both so much for that. And uh, the best place to start, I guess, would be for you both to tell us the story of the bank job for people who haven't heard it before. Hilary, maybe you could start us at the beginning and then between the two of you, you could tell us the story. It's clear it is a long story. <laughs> it's a long story, but we won't tell the long story. Yeah. But it kind of started with Dan and uh, a kind of, as he was talking about, a crisis of meaning in life. And I mean, he might want to talk about that, but like why why we make art, why we make films. It kind of started at the end of my f first feature film, which I shouldn't say, it's not really mine. No. It's ours. Yes. <laughs> but it's mine. Uh, and uh, so th this film was called How to Reestablish a Vodka Empire, and it had been a quest to try and uh, find my family history because my father died when I was three bringing the spirit literally of my ancestors into Britain and selling it. We sold vodka to Selfridges and the Ritz and all sorts of places. But um, I had become like very bored of like turning a, what was a profound story into a sales pitch effectively from in five star bar after five star bar. And um, I got so bored of it that I basically just decided to kind of drive the company into the ground you didn't decide well kind of and also you create the the distillery was taken over by um the russian mafia so that wasn't so cool i didn't like it events so conspired events to... conspired to make me question um you know and ask that basic question of 
why do I write, as George Orwell put it in his book. And I couldn't, and I, and I did feel that I couldn't really do anything at all until I had answers to those basic questions. And um, the only way I could find any answers was to, was to read the works of other writers and creative people who had been in a similar position. So I did find George Orwell, Why I Write. I found uh, a book by Tolstoy, uh, which was called A Confession. I found Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and all of which were fascinating. And um, I felt that I was having, I was in conversation with wonderful minds, you know, and it really did help me to try and come out of the fog. And at that point, uh, I was looking for a new, I wanted to do something new, obviously, but I couldn't find uh, a topic. And it was at that moment that someone had um, a neighbour across the street who was a filmmaker doing lots of stuff for Channel 5 said, have you heard about this group in New York who are buying up and abolishing millions of dollars worth of student and medical debt? And there was something about that story that resonated somehow with me. And I thought, you know, those characters uh, who were doing that seem to have such a sense of purpose and... and um, they stand for they stand up for what they believe in, and uh, there was something really just quite attractive about it. I couldn't really necessarily put my finger on it. <laughs> so we basically were having a crisis, which ended up in America meeting Andrew Ross and um, and then reading the movement literature of strike debt and creditocracy and and David Graeber's work. That's so. right. Yeah. So that's so. Yeah. I sort of like. Uh, when I read initially Andrew Ross's book, he's a professor at New York University who wrote that book called Creditocracy. Uh, it was it was a totally new way into very contemporary history. You know, he was talking about, I guess, I mean, he, he was talking about 20th century history, but with a special emphasis, I guess, on the 70s to now. And he was talking about a creditor class who had basically taken control of government and was trying to wrap debt around access to all the basic goods uh, uh, such as housing education medical care and you know and it was a particular he was talking specifically about america but i began to wonder well is this trend which he is uh, so clearly uh, analysing and articulating is that also something that's happening in Britain? You know, uh, he was saying that America was turning into a creditocracy where our, our futures are mortgaged off far in advance. You know, that was one of his lines. And I wondered, is that also the case of Britain? And, you know, I was fascinated by it all, but I was also grappling as a storyteller with how does one tell this story for a screen? At first, I thought, I'll become the detonator, you know, and that's what the film was going to be. It was going to be like me wearing a cape, trying to... Filmmaker goes into debt to try and save the world from debt. And I was running around the local area, sort of, like, with credit cards out, you know, trying to, uh, you know, taking out loans in payday loan shops and all sorts of kind of crazy, sort of um, relatively dark comedy-style documentary stuff. But no one would... No one was interested. No one wanted to hear about a film about debt, basically, is the truth of it. And it wasn't until Hillary and I were uh, on a half-term break um, down in Devon, actually, uh, and when we suddenly thought, what about if rather than the film being framed around debt, we turned it into a film which was actually the framing was around money and how money is created? You know, almost in direct 
inverse proportion the way people don't want to talk about debt they do want to talk about money and the idea of making your own money literally just being able to print your own money is is a hugely attractive idea isn't it and so debt and money are actually twins in a weird way debt being the dark twin that no one wants to talk to and money being the one that everyone wants to have over for lunch so dan had been doing lots of talking to people and meeting people on the ground in our community but still we hadn't really got a way of really engaging people in kind of an awareness of the fact that (laughs) we're living in this creditocracy but when he came down off the roof and then we decided to print our own money in order to as as the means in which we were going to be able to um, kind of duplicate what strike debt had done in America buying up medical and student debt and apply that to Britain which we didn't know would you know the mechanics of doing that at the time but we knew that we wanted that to be at the center of our action to kind of act like a spark that kind of opened up awareness of the secondary debt markets but also the illegitimacy and injustice of the current economic system and then the way that we wanted to raise that money was by printing our own money and that started down the shed like printing uh, the face of Gary Nash who runs the local food bank so choosing characters that we felt were really fighting the fallout of an unjust economic system and that kind of allowed us to have the confidence to go bigger and we were thinking well now we need to scale up and get a production line and that's when we came across this former cooperative high street bank that um, we were able to um, get into through IndieCube who are a Welsh cooperative who own the who had the license on the building. And that's when really it became a bank job. When we were occupying this former bank, we were gathering our team around us in this kind of community heist on the financial system. And slowly we found that, yeah, in that changing of the language around it as well, that and the mischievousness, people were kind of, it was kind of contagious. So um, Tracy Griffiths, the head teacher of the local primary school, joined as one of the banknote faces, Syra Mir and her family who run a local homeless kitchen, and Steve and Josh who run a youth project. And these were the four faces on our banknotes and all of they were all within our local community and they were kind of celebrated, also kind of figures of a resistance of sort that were featuring on our banknotes. And we occupied this bank and we really had no idea whether it would work when we opened it up and said, we're going to raise £40,000 from the sale of our artwork banknotes and then we're going to buy up and explode debt. And the other half of the money went into the local community. Yeah, it just seemed to capture public imagination through some kind of lucky press that came out in The Guardian. So we managed to do it. And then we wanted to keep that bank open and engaging with events. And it really became a hub of... um, economic education and became known as the rebel bank it was clear that people wanted it you know they needed they needed a space for rebellion you know a safe space where they could come together and think like a kind of parched desert you know needing water you know it was it was like a rainfall for 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 rebel plants you know (laughs) to take root and you know it wasn't about us as people at that point it was about the community of of people who want 2030 to be exactly what you're describing it as, mm. Rob. <laughs> then the opposite, yeah. despite what they're we're totally led to underrepresented. Believe. You know, like right now, uh, you know, we're, we're led to believe that. I mean, you know, if you if you look at the mainstream narrative, we're we're sort of we're right wing uh, Brexiteers. You know, it's those people that hold the reins, and the other, 
you know, however many percentage of us, which is millions and millions of us, are not represented in public policy at all. So the only thing that we have open to us is to seize direct control of our, our situation around us and do stuff that we believe in, you know, and that's that's how we that's how we see it, you know, that's what we're doing. So tell us about the debt and the and the the cancelling of the debt. If you owe money to a bank or a, a payday lender or a credit card and you don't pay it back, you know, on agreed terms, then they don't want it on their books for too long, so they sell it to a within the secondary debt market so companies that buy up people's debt and they buy it up for like maybe half price to begin with but then they then sell it you know sold on down and down and down the line until some a company may have bought your debt for you know pennies in the pound but they'll be still send you know you'll still get the letters asking for the full amount plus interest so we were kind of intervening hacking into that system to be able to buy up debt at that um reduced value it's older debt it, it's not performing but to be able to kind of do that as a way of highlighting that system and the injustices or more widely than that, not just illuminating a secondary debt system and, it, and its kind of horrors, but more widely illuminating a system that pours kind of scorn and blame at those at the bottom forced to take out payday lens and never really addresses the key questions about how an economic system is, is structured to make that a choice for people that there are you know it's very easy to to change that system but it's embedded in our consciousnesses so so yeah we bought it so we were able with the twenty thousand pounds to buy up 1.2 million pounds of local and we wanted it to be local so it was kind of working with someone to help us do it by postcode predatory debt so payday and catalog debt and then instead of sending those letters we sent letters kind of saying the opposite that this debt is now written off and then that was very quiet because it's all gdpr and um, spreadsheets and we knew that within the film and the project as a whole that wants to pierce kind of public narrative and understanding of debt we needed to um, make more of a show of it and so we'd always planned to blow up that debt quite literally and so we planned an explosion of that debt and we were able to do that explosion again through calling on a community of people, not just locally, but across the globe to to buy our Hoe Street Central Bank bonds. And the bonds were another kind of playing around with a financial instrument in order to raise the money to explode debt. And the return on those bonds would be a piece of that explosion in the form of a bit of windscreen or a coin made out of the exploded wreckage so steel van body and um, cast aluminium but that was fraught with like difficulties and this kind of story of exploding that debt revealed more about a, a kind of system that does not want to be questioned as you know than we expected and it was a fight to get that explosion of a golden debt in transit van to happen in front of the uh, skyline of kind of finance Canary Wharf on the 19th of May 2019 yeah that's right they told us that if it was just a regular kind of movie explosion it wouldn't have had there would be no problems at all it was only when they found out that we had a political agenda and they could see a countdown clock on our website counting down towards the explosion like a like a kind of um i guess it, it reminded them of like a bomb like kind of uh numbering you know going down london will be destroyed yeah that was when the police got in touch saying that they were calling off the explosion and, uh, and, you know, and it was behind them, it was Canary Wharf PLC that was pushing the buttons. Yeah, because we called the explosion, 
kind of art action, Big Bang 2. And that was named after the Big Bang of the 80s in 1986, when Thatcher and the Conservative government were deregulated the stock markets and the kind of beginnings of these neoliberal policies and the widening inequalities that that brought. So it's very specifically a comment, not not on specific companies within that um, skyline, but within that the system. And they were very aware of the symbolism of that moment and its kind of power that they very very much wanted to neutralise. But you blew the van up? I mean, they, they succeeded in a way that at that point we couldn't get the press and that we wanted. But We had to stop advertising as well because we were the way we were doing it was by basically pre-selling bits of the blown up van and tickets to the explosion weren't we but they stopped us from advertising those so we had to you know all of a sudden our sales just plummeted down so they were trying everything they could to to stop us on the one hand i had like the police and canary wharf you know pressuring because i was the one organizing the explosion i had those two all these forces trying to switch off the explosion on the other hand i had governor hillary powell pushing back in the other direction I was stuck in the middle and I didn't know which side would give way first and of course anyone trying to pressure Hillary Powell (laughs) needs to think twice because uh, you know her determination effectively knocked down the police and Canary Wharf and we we got our own way (laughs) yeah but I I suppose it was so important because like people were saying you know could you do it in front of a green screen and put in the backdrop afterwards but the whole thing with all of this project that has made like people engage and come together around it is it's you know it's physically it was housed in a physical location where people could meet all of the processes were so tactile and bringing to people together like thinking through making and the explosion as well as this cathartic act and and the very visceral nature of it yeah it's about kind of material thinking so for me it yeah it wasn't an option <laughs> fantastic fantastic and i and i uh, i got my coin made from the made from some of the wreckage which i'm just i just think all all the stuff you've produced out of this is so fantastic and if if things carry on in the way they are rob it looks like you might end up with a um with a uh, <laughs> an ingus as well that would be wonderful that'd be wonderful i remember hillary when we spoke before you said that when the bank was open for people to drop in at the time you and the team were printing and creating the notes you said people seemed starved of making. It was a quote that really jumped out at me from that conversation we had. How different is it when aiming to fire the imagination to do something analogue, something tangible, rather than you could have just run a purely digital political campaign? Why is the analogue so important in all of this? I think it's kind of true that through through people's, yeah, the routine that people are forced into in lives nowadays in order to... Um, you know, make ends meet are often routines that deny that kind of access to the, you know, the craft of making the the creativity that's in all of us that's so stifled, like so early on in lots of cases. So that chance to reconnect with, you know, the the skills of the hand that all of us have and and need that sense of touch and. And the way that that can open up conversations, it's not even even compared to like we held events in the bank and, and you know, they were great and the discussion was generated. But it's the way that people can talk over making and then and the, the, con- the different kind of concentration that comes from that is when you're special. making something, there's some kind of meditation involved, isn't there? So your mind goes into a different phase. Yeah. So it's less confrontational, yeah. maybe and more um, considered. So, yeah, I think that that 
really helped in the bank? Because I think there were people who sometimes came into the bank wanting to, you know, challenge, which is great, and argue. But often then they were <laughs> all, they didn't agree with what they'd heard in a newspaper, but coming in and kind of almost, I think, even like some of the academics or econ economic thinkers who'd been very wary of getting involved with us once they came into the bank, they were, they said they were seduced by the atmosphere, that, you know, yeah. this was a collective gathering. Anne Pettifor came in and she said that she'd been ignoring us all the way along <laughs> and now that she had to eat humble pie. Yeah well don't say that <laughs> but she's now a kind of key ally and it was through that a tour of the bank you know putting your hands into big buckets of water with bits of broken down old Bank of England tender that we were making you know remaking into new money that I suppose it made visible the kind of ideas the transformative ideas we were talking about and made that seem more yeah, things more possible. You mentioned about about challenges and critiques. I mean, I guess the the one that I've heard from people whenever I mention it is is to say, well, if we just go around, and I'm sure you've answered this many many times, it'd be interesting to hear how you responded to it. And people say, well, if we just go around paying off everybody's debt, isn't that just going to encourage more more people to just rack up more and more reckless debt? Um, that actually paying off paying off debt is tackling the the symptom and not the cause. I think that the way we've done it, the, the way we did it is not a solution, it was a highlighting of the injustices. So do keeping on, yeah, feeding the secondary debt markets wouldn't be a solution. But the it's just always that kind of moralising judgment that, oh, these, this kind of who deserves their debt written off, when really people, this kind of, the way that we're all interconnected and we're all in this debt crisis together, and that, you know, on a national scale, writing off debt is kind of like a reset button that then, along with other policies, could make for a much more just and and a kind of productive economy. Yeah, of course we hear about that. And, uh, you know, just, just think it's nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Great, OK. Um, <laughs> where, uh, where, when I visited, I met Sailor, whose family appear on one of the notes, and I asked her what it meant for her to appear on them. And she said, for us, this is like Christmas. It was very beautiful. How has this been for the other three cover stars? How has it impacted them to appear on their... Tracy, the head teacher, took longer to persuade because it's kind of taking a stand. And as a you know an employee of the state, she was more careful. But I think when they all saw their faces and came to the bank and saw themselves, like because we pasted giant ones up on the, the front of the bank, so it was a very public act, they were kind of embarrassed but I think secretly proud although although Gary when we interviewed him recently he came to our online book launch he said that it's always been kind of deeply embarrassing but also <laughs> but also like great and also you know it's not just that we've taken their faces and you know they 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 also you know they materially gain from the sale of the notes too so there's this relationship of fundraising for them as well but I think yeah for everyone it's been a kind of learning journey and it's been great well it's been heartbreaking to see how the each of those organizations that we kind of revisited on film through the pandemic have had to like kick into action in ways that you know that they never had to before that they're I think most of them were crying <laughs> like it's just like that the, the need for them has just ramped up unbelievably in this time with the school becoming a food bank pretty much all of them becoming food banks or, or toy banks we've got these kind of long-standing links with them now and yeah and we're actually still funding them even though it's much quieter now yeah because we've, we've, we've started reselling banknotes because we had to we still had some in stock 
and we also created a membership, a bit like your uh, podcast, Rob, uh, that you were talking about minutes ago. We have members who pay in every month, uh, and we put half of the money that they pay to the membership into the causes. So uh, even though uh, it's less sort of on the nose now, you know, we're not like publicly sort of making such a big deal out of it, that basic concept of producing art which aims to change the structure on the one hand but which also engages with the reality on the other hand is uh is a concept which which we still really hold to and that we really want to carry on using i think in in the work that's ahead of us because i think when we lost the actual bank building and you know we had a campaign to try and stay on there and grow this and there would have been space for each of the organizations alongside us but we didn't you know we didn't do that but when the kind of messages of support coming in from people were really kind of spurring us on because the rebel bank lives on in the imagination and in the kind of spirit of um rebellion that that holds and yeah i feel that's true that we we we're carrying on that work maybe another form now and now we've got the other the new challenges of that that kind of material tactile meeting is you know restricted at the moment so finding new ways of keeping sharing the project obviously that now comes with the way the book can travel and the film that comes out can travel and and touch people in in you know different ways and inspire more action Um, we're living in a time when the people and institutions who seem intent on driving humanity over a cliff at great speeds are increasing their malevolence and shamelessness at the worst possible time, while those who want to create a future in which humanity can thrive and survive are struggling to agree on what might be the most skillful way to respond. What, what do you think your experiences with the bank job can teach us about where we go from here? What does a, a radical, transformative politics underpinned by imagination look like well i would say uh maybe we we need to disentangle politics from action you know actually uh i think i think the intertwining of those two things is probably one of the causes of the stalling of of progressives in a way Uh, and and the best way that we can uh move forward is is through action you know which is a kind of philosophy of filmmaking really which is that action drives story you know uh and what we what we need to try and do is to yeah bypass those political structures we're not waiting for the perfect day in parliament to come and and imagine that we have so much more power than we actually do imagine that we you know we we imagined we were a central bank the central bank of hope street you know and we began to print our own money you know and and then we began to use the proceeds for what we felt uh, was important, you know, which was helping people in our community and also uh, educating people about what was really happening in in the economy. And you know, we we didn't wait for the Labour Party to come into power to do that. You know, we were hoping that they would. You know, uh, I don't think there's any secret that we were, uh, you know, supporters of of Labour at that same time. However. That whole movement has imploded, you know, and which we would say quite unjustly, really. Democracy has, at this moment, failed to deliver any kind of just solution. And yet there are all these people out there who are desperate to, to make changes. And, and right now, during this whole COVID time, 
you can see that more and more people are just bypassing those political structures and just cracking on and just doing stuff that makes a big difference to other people's lives. And they're leading by example, you know, and, and that's what's so important. And I think that's what we have to try and keep enough belief and, and love uh, and not become disenfranchised or, dis, or dissatisfied with, with the with the apparently what's called the reality out there and just keep keep the faith really and keep 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 moving forwards with with these acts of love and solidarity yeah and freedom yeah i think i'd probably say it much more articulately in the book but like the freedom is it george or what the freedom to say that two plus two is four is, is that the sum but that at the moment yeah we're fed so many stories but like to, that we can make up our own <laughs> story of action and also I think particularly within we're kind of operating in those fields of the arts and yet we're we're not really in the art world because somehow action and <laughs> and politics are excluded from that rarefied sphere so to have this kind of bigger vision of art that can uh, make change and that we shouldn't be afraid to state that and enact that and take on the art world you know like if the art world is way out of whack with reality so take it on you know don't don't shy away Mm -hmm. from those debates uh you know and don't don't shy away from from taking on people whose positions are, are just absurd you know just because they happen to be powerful uh, you know, fight those fights if they need fighting, you know. Uh, but al- although you don't turn into a truculent little bastard. <laughs> Heaven forbid. Um, um, so so what's next? You've done all this. You've written the book. The film's coming out. Where, where, what are your dreams for where this goes next? We want to, I mean, as, as we've been thinking about this, how to maintain... And, and grow this kind of action but with the within the financial limitations we have and the current kind of more physical limitations but we we want to build on that within our local area and kind of work inspired by I suppose through learning about debt and the economic system the people that we've come to kind of admire and, and uh, cherish through this time of people like Anne Pettifor and Kate Raworth and people really talking about how we enact a Green New Deal now. So we're thinking how we can enact our own Green New Deal on the ground in Walthamstow and kind of, again, bypassing the normal systems and just take that literal kind of community power and cultural power into our hands. And it's another, yeah, it's another big one, but we hope that we've learned from bank jobs. We've learned a lot. Like, you know, we've learned a lot about how to sort of... You know, a minute ago I was talking about like kind of, uh, or I was alluding to a kind of burnout. You know, like you, you don't want to burn your your goodwill. You know, and a, a lot of activists, I think, uh, need to take time off from their from their struggle uh, to rejuvenate. You know, and you, you notice this a lot with the Extinction Rebellion um, people, and you know, just lots of people who have been fighting all these kind of like really good fights. They just need some time out, and it's that's that's human nature, and it's it's needed. But also, I think that if one tries to build in a sustainability to the actions that you do, it's really, really important because, you know, these things take a long time, they take a lot of resources, and you cannot overlook the fact that they also take energy as well. So you have to try and create a kind of sustainable methodology of doing these things. Um, And it's a little bit like your model for your podcast using Patreon, Robert. You know, we all need to find 
support from you know and build a community around these projects uh, not not a literal community of people up and down the street of course that's really helpful but people who who believe in it enough to to fund it on a kind of regular basis and you know who who whose patronage if you like will will uh, answer that really important question which which we all have which is where do we find this month's income from you know in order to 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 keep these fights going you know um and and so we need to a methodology for that so we've you know during this whole bank job process we have kind of been able to answer that by producing artworks which themselves uh you know allow us to continue um to 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 work you know uh and so that's been a really interesting thing because before this hillary's work almost she she never would sell anything it was mainly it was mainly installations you know she made her work absolutely um sort of consumption proof she did not want anything of hers to be consumed in any way whatsoever it all just had to kind of you know it, it, it did not want anything to do with the marketplace but now we're much more playful with with what the marketplace is in a way mm. uh, and 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 we've also you know as you probably know rob uh you know i'm massively in, I've, I've learned so much about digital marketing you know uh, because we need to build up these communities so so i i think that becomes very interesting you know that that whole tension between you know changing things and also making sure that you're economically viable you know and and this kind of attitude on the left that you cannot sell you know you can't sell art or you can't do this and that you know I, i'd like to take all that on as well uh you know so you really go for it yeah. <laughs> like, get the, in there the yeah yeah okay. yeah yeah, okay. yeah. chuckling little chap isn't he <laughs> <laughs> so i guess just the last thing i wondered what wanted to ask was if people are listening to this and are inspired and are thinking they might like to start their own equivalent of the bank job or something like that what would what do you suggest where might they start i'd say like go for it i mean we've We've come and, you know, we, we throughout this process, we've been and, want, you know, other communities all around the country have wanted to do it. And particularly around the buying up debt, we've really tried our hardest to think of ways that um, other communities could do the debt buy up. On that level, it's really hard. And also maybe it's not desirable to be re replicable, apart from us sending a kind of signal of a relay of beacons around the country, pushing kind of more policy change. But there's, it's still totally valid that the Rebel Bank can exist anyway in terms of the way that taking on a space. I mean, the high street banks, there's so many high street banks lying empty around the country, like former shells of their former use that could become these kind of hubs of economic education through cultural action just meeting places and and you know places all across the country that's so needed you know there used to be the miners welfare halls where you know there was this culture of debate and inquiry and and self-education and that's kind of disappearing and with that kind of the kind of collective ignorance and apathy just grows and that allows the kind of rise of this of what we've got i like the you know in the beginning of the book and um, we dedicate it to the children with like long live the creative anarchy and imagination of childhood. And I think that's the key thing. Like and that that's lost so quickly in, in the current education system. But that's kind of critical in how how things can change. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. It's been lovely having you both here. Yeah, lovely to talk to yeah, you. Yeah, lovely to have you with us.
And the very best of luck with the book, published by Chelsea Green, available from all good bookshops, and the film. Uh, to find out more, visit bankjob.pictures. And my thanks to everyone for listening, and to everyone who subscribes and enables me to do this, and to Ben Adicott for sound production and theme music. See you next time. Thank you.